Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, Associate Editor Mark Demko. So, hey, everybody, welcome to this week's edition of the Bow Hunting Podcast. We're quickly cruising towards mid October. Get excited if you're a bow hunter and you love whitetail deer hunting. Uh, the rut will be here in just a short time. Uh, but right now, we're sort of coming through that October lull, and you're going to be heading into that um, really interesting time, which is the end of October, say um, the last week, perhaps 10 days, where if you hit it right, the hunting can be really good, uh, especially if you get a cold front coming through. Well, uh, I'm super excited on this week's edition of the podcast. We have two very special guests, uh, and, and uh, I will actually say both of these gentlemen were featured in our Big Buck Roundup in our November, December issue. Uh, we have Billy C. of Iowa and Damian Ripple of Ohio, who both took Monsters last year. And uh, they usually try to target specific bucks that they're interested in. So they have a lot of great insights that they're going to share specifically on hunting the end of October. And actually, uh, I won't spill the beans on anything. There's some great things that I didn't even think of, uh, but they both say that it's actually one of their favorite times of the year to hunt. We talk a little bit about uh, um, calling and rattling and, um, you know, it's just a really great episode that's, you know, packed with information and uh, it got me to thinking you know if you're getting ready for um the prime time for deer season it's the time when most bow hunters get excited you know uh and you you find that you need a couple pieces of equipment or accessories you want to make sure you check out um lancaster archery supply now they're obviously our sponsor of our podcast but they are a great resource for hunting gear and items that you're going to need while you're in the field. Um, I think they sell more than 40,000 different products. So, you know, for all your bow hunting needs, visit LancasterArchery.com. We've got the gear. We've got the knowledge. We've got the passion. Now, stay tuned for what I feel is going to be an excellent, informative episode that's going to get you ready for all of your hunting late October and beyond. So, hey, everybody, welcome to the Bow Hunting Podcast. We're here in October, uh, getting set for that prime time of the year where everybody loves to bow hunt. You know, you think of uh, the second half of October, you're not in that um, October lull anymore, as people like to say, uh, but you're not to that prime pre-rut rut time. So it can be a, a really good time to hunt if you hit it right with a cold front. It can also be challenging. But I have two guests who know a lot about hunting deer in October, and I want to introduce them. And first up, we have. Um, Damien Riffle of Ohio. Damien, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Yeah, now you've done a lot of October hunting uh, during your career. I know you typically try to find a couple bucks you want to target, but you know when you think about October, where would you say the vast majority of, of, of deer you take come during the, the course of the year? Is it that month or is it other months like November where everybody gets super excited about? Uh, honestly, the vast majority of the deer I've killed have all been October. Um, and it, you know, I, I feel like when you're hunting specific deer, um, to be quite frank, I, I hate the rut because it's, it's so unpredictable. You know, the, the deer you're trying to hunt could be two miles away or three miles away. And, you know, at least when I go in the timber in October, I'm, I'm pretty certain he's with probably within 500 yards of me at most times, you know? So, um, I, I like the month of November much more than November. Or uh, October more than November. Yeah, and now I want to take a quick minute and and, and talk about uh, you and we're gonna have 
Billy, you're on the podcast. Oh, I want to also welcome Billy C. Hey, Billy, how are you? Not too bad. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. Now you make your home in Iowa, which is sort of like a, a big buck mecca when it comes to deer hunting, at least right now. Um, you know, and a lot of people would love to hunt there. But uh, um, you got a big buck last year. Uh, I think it was right at the end of this month, didn't you? Tell us a little yep. bit about that. Yeah, right at the end of October. Um, uh, end of October, last 10 days are probably my absolute favorite time to hunt. Um, to be honest, I hate November. <laughs> absolutely hate November. So uh, it's pretty cool to be on this podcast and just do that. But yeah, slipped in, uh, slipped in last year, last fall into a kind of a transition area and just used the uh, Intel that I'm sure we'll get into in this podcast to, and use those tools to be successful. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned already, a lot of people, when they're, when they're thinking about bow hunting, they get really pumped for that first uh, full week of November, or even the first half of the month. But you can have some great October hunting if you hit it right, especially, you know, when you get a cold front or if the conditions are right, you're able to paddle your deer. So let's, let's start with you, Billy. My first question is, is like, you're going to give one piece of advice for hunting in those last 10 days of the month. What's it going to be? Find a transition area near a doe bedding area would probably be my my best advice that's that's where i put all my focus i want to be in that intersection where a buck is getting it out of his bed and headed to check that first available doe you know generally it's a it's a bedding area and very close or next to a food source those does are still hitting but those bucks want to know whether or not you know the first one's coming into asterisk and generally they'll bump that bedding area and then head out to a food source. So I like to hone in on that, that intersection, so to speak, and be on that X. Yeah, thank you. And, and obviously I think you used a little bit of that strategy for that deer you patterned last year, didn't you? That is exactly the strategy I use. Yep. Yeah. Now, Damien, you mentioned you take a lot of your deer in October. What What is your one piece of advice you'd give to somebody who'd want to become a more successful deer hunter in the 10th month of the year? So in I used to believe it was just in October because that was a lot of what I hunted, but, uh, I'm a big follower of the moon and I'm a little bit atypical. Um, and what I like to hunt is the, the new moon, especially in October. Um, you know, you listen to juries and all them and they, they don't like the new moon. I've killed the vast majority of my deer in the October new moon. Um, and it's a, a three day window, three days prior to it and two days after. And, you know, that it doesn't matter. Honestly, it hasn't mattered whether it was the first of October, the 15th of October, or the 23rd of October. I've, 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 that has always been kind of my go to. Um, and, a, you know, a lot of, um, I don't know, moon naysayers, they're like, well, you're saving your, your good spots for that time. And that's why you're successful. But it's not. I hunt when I can, you know, and I hunt the stands, the same stands, if the conditions are right, you know, if the wind's right, the, everything's right. I, I go hunt the stands according to where, what the wind and everything is telling me. So it's not like I'm, I'm saving a honey hole for those locations. It just, when everything comes together, it always seems to be in that window. So to, at this point, like, those five days, like I won't miss an evening in those five days. And, you know, if you can compound a, a cold front or, you know, a, a, a rain through the day and it's going to stop 
you know, the last hour of daylight or something along those lines, you know, that just compounds it. And, uh, you know, when I walk in the woods and those situations have occurred, that, that my confidence levels through the roof that I'm going to have an opportunity. No, that's phenomenal that you you share that. And it actually brings up, if you don't mind, I have two other questions for you. The first is um, talked about uh, the moon phase. You also pay attention to moon positioning, like sunrise and sunset and yes. moonrise yeah. and moonset sort of coinciding, if you can get that to work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, with, when you're typically a lot, most of the time when you're looking at, at the new moon, you know, in the evening time frame, it, it's typically already underfoot. Um, so you're looking underfoot or overhead is typically what you're wanting. Um, but it, usually when you get an evening um, new moon, it's it's already underfoot. So, um, yeah, it, anytime you get that kind of. Uh, um, overhead, underfoot in that last hour of daylight, you know, it, every, all those things are compounding factors on it, I think. The other thing that I wanted to ask you is, is how does temperature, if at all, tie into this? Because you were talking about the moon being maybe your number one criteria, but I mean, obviously in October, you can have really cold days and really warm days. Does that have an impact? You know, uh, good case. Uh, I shot a, a 180 in 2018 on October uh, 18th, I think it was, or 19th. And that buck uh, was always, you know, when you get him moving, it was always an hour after dark, an hour before daylight type of thing. And uh, that new moon window was coming up that year. And it was uh, 90, I think, the the first day of that three-day window prior to the new moon if i remember right it was 93 degrees and i elected not to hunt because it was so hot mm -hmm. and he daylighted um and then the very next day was even hotter and 95 and i'm like oh it was a fluke you know i'm i'm not gonna go out there and sit and sweat and you know stink up my spots and he yeah. daylighted again uh you know and then the i killed him on i believe it was the fourth day of that window so two days after that is, is when i killed him so we, but that uh that being said those two days were 95 degrees the day i killed him we had the, the all day rain it stopped at 4 30 in the evening and i shot him at 5 15 so um you know in it i think the temperature was 69 or 70 degrees that day so it, significant temperature drop you know, yeah. likely getting up the feed too. at least maybe traveling a little further. Uh, to he feed. was actually uh, running scrape lines. It, that's the story is a pretty, uh, it, you know, he's one of my favorite deer just because I had multiple years of history with him. But I actually uh, called my buddy during the day and, you know, I, I knew where he was betting and, and I was hesitant that he busted me um, prior to that because he was headed downwind of me. I never heard a deer run off or snort or anything. And I just kind of sat there motionless to, for an hour after dark, hoping he got out of there. And I was nervous that if he came back again, he would circle even further downwind. And I said, but if he does that, where he comes out of his bedding area, I could see him from 300 yards away. And there's a, a lot of topography, big drop off there. It's probably 300 feet of elevation. And I told my buddy, I was like, I could change stands as if, if that happens. And that's exactly how I killed that deer. He, 
he committed running a scrape line coming up this creek bottom. And uh, I climbed down. And like I said, it had rained all day. And I ran 80 yards to the other side of the draw, got up in another stand. And 15 minutes later, he stepped out 35 yards downwind of my other tree stand. And I shot him at 40 yards. So that's an incredible story. And congratulations. I'm guessing you meant you really did run and hustle to get over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it's a pretty, uh, pretty awesome, you know, encounter and, and, and that sort of thing. But, it, you know, um, I, I think when it comes to October, you know, you, you have to be, I don't want to call it aggressive, but you know, you have a limited time when they're on those summer feeding patterns and, and kind of going into the fall patterns and yeah. you have a lot of things going on. They're going from green, you know, greens to, to acorns and, or, you know, if there's no acorns they're converting over to grains. And so you got to windows there that if, if you don't take advantage and capitalize in those windows, you're going to miss out and, you know, might miss your opportunity for the year at a deer. Yeah. And, 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 and that's a, a great way to position that. Cause like you said, it, it can be hit or miss, but, 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 you know, obviously doing your homework and your Intel is, is crucial. And uh, Billy, you mentioned that, that the end of October is one of your favorite times of the year. What have you learned? Is there anything that surprised you as you started to hunt more and more in October the past few years? Um, I, uh, as far as what I've learned calling, um, if you need to use the ability to call to a whitetail, I've, I've grunted and snortweezed actually last year, grunted and snortweezed a, a five-year-old eight pointer in, I didn't end up getting a shot at him, didn't work out in the blind, but he, he came from 200. He was headed out away from me. I grunted and snortweezed at him. It was actually October, like, 17th or 19th something like that and he immediately like perked up pinned his ears back snort wheezed back at me without even seeing me and he came on a run getting defensive so one thing i'm learning with like the mid-october late october time frame you can call a lot earlier um and that's been an effective tool also i Dang. think you're right on that you know i i feel like you, you're spot on with that i feel like the deer haven't been called at yet by a, a ton of people you know you get into that november and and even in november when you're calling at them they're they're just focused on one thing whereas yep. their curiosity in october gets them when you call at them you know even if it's just a subtle grunt or whatever and it might act they might not act like they even hear you and then 15 minutes later they just pick their head up and start walking your way you know so yep. I, I think you're 100 percent right on that yeah now uh, talking about calling and how much attention do you pay to scrapes and rubs use it more just for a little bit of patterning or do you do you guys actually spend some time really homing in on certain scrapes and things like that i should probably like start moving my cameras over to scrapes like that's probably one thing you know we're 10 days into you know october or so that's probably when i'll start that transition is getting into moving them over scrapes. I know a lot of people do it earlier. I tend to leave my cameras on a green food source longer, but as far as like hunting scrape lines and stuff, I really don't. Um, it is an effective tool. Um, I'm more so somebody I like to see a long ways. I like to get to a vantage point. I wanna be able to watch what the deer are doing. And I kind of set my stands for that so I can hang back, observe, 
and then I can continually move in tighter as you know as you go, so to speak. Um, so that's what I, I'll end up doing. I, it's probably not the the best answer, but I generally don't hunt over scrapes. No, and I think that's I, a great thing for for deer hunting. Go ahead, go ahead, Damien. I I'm the same. Like I I put cameras over scrapes. I think the vast majority of scrape activity is nighttime stuff. Um, yeah, you'll get them hitting it in the daytime, but it you know the vast majority of the scrape activity that you see is nighttime. So I think hanging on a scrape line, hoping that big deer is going to come run that scrape line while you're sitting there is, is kind of a, a pipe dream in them for most cases. Um, if anything, you know, hunt 40, 50 yards on the downwind side of a scrape line and they might just cruise through scent checking it, you know, or something along those lines. But actually other than inventory, um, you know, cameras on scrapes are great. And I think, um, that if, um, it gives you a good, I guess, uh, uh, temperature gauge of, of where the rut's at, you know, yep. you get them, you know, as, as the rut is, is coming in and, and starting, you know, you get the feverish rut scraping activity, and then you it really kind of dies out there that second week in November. Yeah. Probably around the fifth, it really peters out where they're starting to get those does come into the estrus and they lose interest in the scrapes. And then, you know, as, as the breeding kicks off, those scrapes go cold. And then, you know, once it kind of starts petering back down, they pick back up on opening them scrapes back up and checking for the last, you know, rain remaining hot does. So I think it, it's a good temperature gauge, but I don't, it's not necessarily something that I desire to hunt on. Yeah. I have to add, I feel, I feel the same way. I live in Pennsylvania. You guys know we face a lot of hunting pressure here. Uh, I have a couple acres at my house and for uh, 13 years I've lived here, there's a scrape that opens up in the exact same spot every year without fail. I've never seen a deer on that scrape in daylight. And uh, that's a lot of hunting. You know, I mean, I only have two stands on my property here. I have eight acres. And uh, I went to Wisconsin one year and hung lightly pressured land. I saw three bucks working a scraper, looking branch working that area in, in in about four hour span. I almost fell out of my stand. I'd never seen that in my life. Yeah. So, but but it's not something that I would focus on either. I'd probably use it as, shall we say, a piece of the puzzle. Yes. Sitting around waiting to win the lottery is what I call it. <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. Now, you obviously get out and you guys do some hunting in October. How do you use it to inform what you're doing the rest of the season? How do you take that intel and maybe use it? You're not going to get a, the buck you're after every year, say, in the last seven to 10 days of October. How do you use it then to help shape the rest of your season? I, I target specific deer, plain and simple. Yeah. And like yeah. it, if you don't get them into that, you know, October months, you're you're the month of November is just a free for all, you know, and then you, you hope that, uh, you keep getting random photos of them periodically through the rut. And then, you know, as the rut dwindles down, they come back into their kind of their core home range and you can kind of go into late season. So it, I guess if anything, it just kind of structures, you can, you can, you can learn, you know, depending on if their bedding areas change from October to January, you can learn in, in October where you can kill them in January, just his his favored, you know, travel routes, stuff like that. So if anything that I learned on a target deer in October, you know, I, I will utilize it to try killing them in late season. 
And if, if I remember correctly, Damien, you, you, the buck you got last year, you got in, I think it was the second half of January, and you waited uh, until the twenty second. You waited till the conditions were absolutely right, and that deer started to show up in daylight again. And you sort of had an idea where it was bedding in a swampy area. So you, you know, now that you know, I think is is a great example of you know how you could put some of that intel that you gathered over the years together. And obviously, as you said, you you knew there was only one big buck in the woodlot you were hunting. Yeah, yeah that uh, that situation, you know, that was last year was a rough year, but uh, you know. I didn't have a whole lot of history with that that buck in particular um, previous to that, um, but I used his the the, the travel patterns. You, you try to pick up on where they were, and, and with that deer, I knew that was a small chunk of property, and uh, I knew I had to get him to bed on that chunk of property to even ever get an opportunity of killing him. Because if he wasn't in that woodlot, he was a half a mile away in the next woodlot. And for them to cross wide open country in January, you know, in daylight is, is not going to happen. So, um, you know, it, you, you just constantly have to learn their behaviors. And, and it's not, you know, in Ohio here, it, it, people, I don't want to get anybody mad, but it, people get really lazy and just dump a bag of corn and think that's the, the, the cure all fix all. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it is a fantastic way to inventory the deer that you're going to hunt. Um, but nice. it, it, what's that? That's a God. That'd be nice. <laughs> right. it, it is great for inventory. Um, but man, you know, especially in January, you know, every deer in the woods walks around looking up and you know, you, you can't get away with a whole lot. So does it happen? Yeah, but it, it's 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 far more difficult than than it sounds. You know, if you got a thousand acre piece that you know, which is next to impossible to even find anymore, Ohio's quickly become the the twenty acre hunting camp that you know those big farms have all auctioned off into twenty and forty acre parcels, and every twenty and forty acre parcel has two to three guys hunting it. Each guy's dumping a bag of corn and running a camera. And, you know, it, you, if you, it's just, a it, the deer are educated to it and it's not a, it's not an easy thing to, to conquer. Um, but it's, uh, I forget where we were even going with that, but it, it's, um, where, where are we going with that? <laughs> no, I, I think we were talking about, you know, what you would take from this time of the year using, and I don't know, Bill, if you have any additional thoughts on that. I mean, obviously you can learn a lot, as you said, and sometimes you have a better crack at a deer in October and gets really um, helter skelter and sort of hit or miss come November. But what do you take from what you learned in October and how do you apply it to the rest of the year? I'm kind of like Damien. Um, like I said, you know, I'm not one of those crash in, get tight, you know, confine yourself to a specific area. I'm more so I'll stay back and watch and I'll let a buck tell on himself. Um, I don't have to go in and kill him the very first time, but just being able to observe, watch what he does. And even if I'm not in that X and don't get him killed, you know, before November 1st, I know my chances greatly increase around that Thanksgiving time. And that's really when I'll start to hone in because as that rut wears down, I do believe that they know where their home core is. They may travel two or three miles or further away, finding does in that desperate time, you know, in that two and a half week window in November. 
but all my bucks over the years, especially since running cameras, I will see them start to filter back into known bedding areas. And I can use my same October tactics in the late season. I just negate the mornings. I'll completely get rid of morning hunting. I'll focus on that area that I know that he's been. I'll focus on areas that he's come out at before. And that's just where I'll put my efforts. I mean, whitetails, in my opinion, aren't that hard to hunt. They tell on themselves a lot. And at the end of the day, they're slaves to their stomach. So, you know, when they're out looking for love and bar hopping, as I call it, they're always going to come home. They're always going to have to eat. So they're going to want a place to sleep. They're going to want a place to eat. Uh, they've already told me where they do it before they go out to the bar. <laughs> now, I have to ask you That's a question. Damien, I know where you live in Ohio, you have a season for archery that goes all the way into the beginning of February. Um, Billy, I don't know when your season is, but my question is, do you have that, while we're talking October whitetails here, do you have that that secondary rut or that second rut uh, in December, say early to mid-December? Does that give you any opportunities? Again, I don't know when your archery season ends in, in, in Iowa. So ours comes in October 1st, and then there's a split during the first three weekends in December. So the shotgun season comes in and we have to put the bows away. So it doesn't pick back up until about the week before Christmas and then only goes to January 10th. So seeing that late rut or that second rut, yes, but a majority of those deer are getting shot by either shotguns or people are pushing them and you don't quite get to observe that. We have party hunting here in Iowa still. So you can get a group of guys together and push through a timber. So it's a it's a hit or miss in December. Do I believe that there's a second rut? Yes. Do I believe it's desperate? No. I do believe you get some does bred in the in the first week of December, however. Yeah. No. No, I will say I live in southeastern Pennsylvania, which is a lot of housing developments interspersed with farmlands. And so many, many years ago, um, it would get pretty hard where I live in gun season. And so I started to go back to my archery spots and I killed my biggest buck in Pennsylvania um, during the second week of the gun season. It would have been about like the eighth or ninth um, and happened to be a cold front was following the dough. It just it just worked out really well. But that was a matter of you couldn't get in there to gun hunt. So sometimes that can be a successful tactic later in the year, too, if you just don't have that hunting pressure. But I know that, you know, it gets hard in, in, in various states, especially once the people start shooting at them with lead. Yeah. So. Yeah. Perfect now, timing uh, for this uh, podcast here. I just got one of those texts that, that you absolutely got, love getting from your buddy. My buddy, Zach Kayser, is an October killer. He just texted me and he's dead. So <laughs> <laughs> photos to follow or what? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're just probably the last five minutes or 10 minutes of shooting light here in Ohio. So I'm sure uh, I'll be getting photos here shortly. No, that that's great. You know, the other thing we probably should touch on, uh, I'd love to hear from both of you on this. There's probably some things you should not be doing in late October to educate the deer. So let, let's start with you, Damien. Like, what are your things that you really try to be conscious of, whether it's approaching the stand, leaving the stand, or not overhunting? There's got to be things that you really try to pay attention to in October, especially if you're going to be in it for the long haul during the season. In October in general, uh, you know, I'm, I'm typically hunting food sources. So your entry and exit is, you know, the utmost importance. Um, I have uh, become a big fan of the coyote call. 
I have a uh, digital coyote call and I usually, as I'm walking into stand, I'll turn it on and set it about 70 yards from where I'm hunting. And then when I go to get out of my, my stand, I'll set that coyote call off and push the deer out. And then go as I'm going down, I got to walk right past it. I pick it up. And, you know, if it's a long walk out to the truck, I will actually uh -huh. leave it running, yipping and, and carrying on as I walk out of the woods. Because I'd much rather them push off as you're walking, as I carry it, they're kind of slowly pushing back as they hear you coming. And they don't associate that with people pressure. You know, they see coyotes all the time and, you know, at least around here anyway. And, um, I find that I can hunt even in the late season, like I will hunt food sources night after night after night. And if anything, they get a little bit used to the coyote call and they won't run right away. And, but that'll still eventually that'll make them nervous and they'll push off into the brush. I can get down, get out of there without them ever noticing me. So, um, entry and exit is, is incredibly important. Um, but when it gets down to those last kind of, uh, into, into October, starting to get where the bucks are going to break loose and, and start cruising a little bit more, I'll take more chances. And, uh, you know, some wins that I wouldn't have hunted prior, I might take a chance because, you know, in three days or four days, he might be, you know, two miles away. And, uh, you know, right now I know he's still in this area and I need to make it happen. And I might hunt a cutting wind that, you know, is a little bit iffy that I wouldn't have hunted earlier. Um, so I think the last few days, you got to take your, take your chances on food sources before they transition into that full on rut. But, uh, other than that, it's, it's just entry exit. Yeah. And Billy, I'm sure there's a lot of things you try to pay attention to. Is there any advice you would share with hunters, uh, especially if, if they don't have a wide variety of properties to hunt? Don't rattle every 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, that, um, <laughs> it just, yeah, I think, I think Damien's spot on. I'm the same way. I, I've never thought about doing, doing that. Um, I'm fortunate where I live. Um, I'm, I've got people that are within five minutes of me and I can pick up a phone and say, Hey, drive through that field and honk your horn. Or, you know, the, the great thing about sitting observation is if they're, if they're not right underneath me and I'm not on a heavy food source, I can generally get, get out pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, very rarely am I getting caught with that last, you know, five minutes of light and I've got to get down or something. So I'm fortunate in that aspect. But yeah, I think the the biggest thing I would say is don't be afraid to get aggressive in October, but don't overdo it. You've got to find that balance. And that's what I mean. Like Damien said. Yeah, be common sense about it. You know, you yeah. can't just throw everything to the wind, but you you have to be able to risk a little bit to to make it happen. I'll do that. I call it the 45 wind or the whiskey wind, whatever. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll start hunting some of those 45 wins if I have to and, and moving some sets around. But with the calling, you still, you can't go, you can't go ham on that stuff. Like those bucks know, you know, and I, I, the biggest thing too, is if you're going to call, pay attention to what deer vocalizations and fights actually sound like. 
there's enough content, you know, there's enough content out there right now that you can go to YouTube and consume yeah. content and watch bucks actually fighting, whether it's in Pennsylvania, Iowa, Texas, you get to, to hear that stuff. And it's not like, I just, I mean that because I've, I've dealt with it so much. There's so many people that I've heard on either a neighboring public, public farm or, you know, a neighbor the hunting the opposite farm. And I just hear ting, 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 ting. Like they'll, it's almost like they're moving them back and forth. And it's like, that's not rattling. It's, it's more pushing than it is antlers clanking. And I don't think it benefits me because they just push them to me. <laughs> but Damien was right. You, you've got to find that balance. You can't, you can't be dumb. You got to use some common sense, but get aggressive at the same time. Yeah, and thank you for that. Now, we've talked about a lot over the past 35 minutes or so. What haven't we touched on as far as things you think people really need to pay attention to if you're hunting in October? Do you know if either of you had any following uh, follow-up thoughts on, on something else that we haven't touched on? De depending on age of deer. Pay it if you're paying attention to deer and what you're trying to target and hunt, pay attention to that. If you're okay shooting a two-year-old, more power to you. You know, if you're, if you want to set your standards a little bit higher and you're hunting five, six, seven, eight-year-old deer, you know, try and pay attention to what mature bucks are doing compared to what a two-year-old buck's doing. If your buck is hitting your scrape lines in the middle of the night at midnight and he's a five, six-year-old deer, but you've got every two-year-old hitting it at eight o'clock in the morning, chances are you need to adjust your tactics. Don't go hanging over that, you know, that scrape. You're not going to sit there and wait for it in daylight. Start to move something around. Don't be afraid to go in in the middle of the day. You know, we've got rain coming up here in Iowa. I'm getting ready to prepare for the last 10 days, you know, in October. I'm, I'm right here ready to do it. It's going to rain. I'm going to, I'm going to go out in the middle of a rainstorm and I'm going to move a set. I'm going to hang it. I'm going to move three cameras. You know, using using the weather or crop at an advantage, that's the other thing too. I don't know about where Damien's at, but if a combine's running, that's the that's one of the peak times also that I will head into an area if I know that I'm going to be hunting close to a bedding area. If there's semis or field tillage or combines running, that's another a, a tactic to use. If you have to make an adjustment, do so where you can be least intrusive. Yeah, and that and that's a great point. And um, you know, is there a point where you can actually push it too much? Where you thought we've been talking the whole time tonight about maybe that fine line. Um, what's your basic parameters or strategy as far as adjusting your sets and things like that? Obviously, you have a if you have a, a, a nice buck that's maybe close to moving in daylight hours, you, you want to be careful, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um probably just paying attention to the times that he's moving. If you are running cameras, you know, some people don't, some people aren't running cell cameras. I do think they're coming more prevalent. Um, but, but also cameras don't tell the whole story. You know, I, I'm running 10 cell cameras right now, which isn't very much in comparison to a lot of other people. And they weren't telling me the whole story. You know, I watched a, my target deer this year uh, during youth season, tried to put my 10 year old on him. He walked by three different cameras, but he didn't trigger them. They're, it's not the cameras, but he was just, he either walked behind one or just out of range of one or off to the side. He walked by three different ones and, and I never got his picture once. 
but my cameras were telling me he was only moving in the middle of the night. So I, I think you just, you've got to pay attention to known transition areas. You've got to pay attention to known doe bedding areas. They're, that's just it. They're looking for does to go obviously seek out mm -hmm. on when they're coming into estrus first. You've got to hone in on those areas, cameras or not, because those are the areas those bucks are going to use. That's just, that's the tactic that has worked for me. I've shot, I shot my biggest deer ever using that tactic. I shot my dip biggest, or that drop time deer last year using that tactic. If you know that they're accessing known bedding areas a certain way, focus on that X and spend time on that X. They will screw up and they will walk through it. Yeah, and, and um, Damien, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Um, you know, he, he brought up the cell camera stuff, and I, I think that's um, a very good piece of information there. Like, the, the cell cameras have kind of brought in a whole new dynamic um, with firsthand information. You know, you can, you can move and make adjustments uh, to your strategy that evening off of cameras, photos that you got in the morning, you know, um, and that sort of thing. And, and I, I think that that whole uh, mindset, and again, we go back to Ohio with people dumping corn and you see it all the time on our hunting forums. They're like, this buck's only coming in in the middle of the night. What, what can I do to get him in daylight? Move. Like everybody's afraid to move. They think, that they're going to dump a bag of corn and that's going to be the, it, it they've lost a lot of woodsmanship in the, in hunting and in, in, I'm sure all bait states are that way. And they don't, uh, they don't seek the deer out. They expect uh -huh. the deer to seek them. Out. And that, that is the furthest thing from the truth. Like if you need to, if you have a deer, you might learn, find a deer but that might not be the core, his core area. He might not like being there all the time. He might only come through there once a week. You need to move and find where he wants to be and where he's hanging at, out at more to increase your odds of, of killing that deer. You know, you know, it kind of goes to that one I killed last year. You know, that deer, unfortunately, I, I door knocked and couldn't get any other additional uh, access in the area. And it was, it was kind of limited to that, 40 acre chunk and it was only 12 acres of timber. And, uh, you know, the way I set that up is, uh, I knew that deer had to bed on that property. It was huge, big, giant oaks and poplars in there. And the only place they'd bed on that 12 acres, it was on the North end in that, in that swamp thicket. So I was feeding and there was, uh, down on the, the far, uh, South end and it was a wedge piece. And then I was hunting in between to catch that deer. If he was to, to bed in there, I knew I was, he was, wasn't going to show up more than likely in, in daylight on, on feed. So I was hunting that transition area, hopefully going to get, catch him staging up, heading that direction. And with that little narrow strip of woods, you just, there was a, a bunch of windfalls that kind of funneled down where he would have to come through there if he was in that swamp. And, uh, th that's how I killed that deer. And, and the same thing that morning with the cell camera, I got him passing through there, heading North, heading uh -huh. to that swamp. And it was almost daylight. So I knew 
there was a high probability he was bedded in that swamp. And that made me go in there, you know, that night to hunt. So you just have to be able to adjust on the fly. You can't just be a, a, a cookie cutter, you know, hunt the same stand every night, every day for every day that you hunt. You have to be able to adjust. You have to be able to move and you have to get creative sometimes in, in order to uh, make it happen. Yep. Yep. That's that's tremendous advice, and obviously there's a, there are a bunch of things you don't want to hunt one or two stands and burn them out. Um, you want to try and have multiple properties, give yourself some flexibility, and uh, if you can, and things like that. So great, thank you. I agree with Damian. Like the the piece I'm hunting right now, where my target deer is, I watched him in velvet. I've, I've seen him in youth season. I've gotten him all over the cameras. I know where he's at right now. Like I'm not saying I can go in there and kill him tomorrow morning. But mm -hmm. I know I've got him patterned down to about three acres. But the time for me to go in there is not right yet. The the yeah. conditions are not right. He's not moving enough in daylight yet. He's showing up eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night, three o'clock in the morning. But at three o'clock in the morning, he's headed into the bedding area. When I'm getting him at eight, nine, he's headed out. So I know where he's at. I just can't go in there and get him yet. I'm waiting for that time frame where he's moving a little bit more. He's getting a little bit more aggressive on checking those scrapes and thinking less about his stomach. And that's when I'm going to crash in there on the right weather front. A few, you know, the last 15, 10, 15 days in October, and I'm going to crash in there. Am, am I guaranteeing a kill? No. But if I was betting my money on killing that deer versus going to a new farm and trying to make something happen yeah. out of fresh ingredients, I'm putting all my money on that deer that I can go in there and kill him. Well, certainly I wish you luck on that this year. And, you know, I know you just got in from work, so we're, I'm going to wrap up with one question I have, but I'd like each of you to answer if you can. And, and we'll stick with you, Billy, to start. What is your favorite bow hunting memory or harvest from October? You, you've taken a number of deer in October. Do you have a story that jumps out to you in your mind? That's what everybody's appetite, if you could share. I would say last year's last year's hunt and the reason last year's on that drop time deer is is for a lot of reasons it humbled me uh humbled me up um due to that marginal shot i was very disciplined in my tactics uh -huh. knowing that it was a once in a lifetime deer um it ran me through the emotional ringer on, on having to wait overnight. And the next morning I got to uh, have one of my very best friends help me recover that deer. And uh, it was taken on a home farm. So as far as the tactics applied, the caliber of deer, it was being my first and only drop time um, to the, to the wrap up of it. Yep. That it, it was, uh, that's probably beautiful deer. Probably my most memorable October hunt. It's not just about a rack size for me. Um, the, you know, the other guys in that article killed much bigger deer than me. Great deer. But just the overall humbleness, I'm not afraid to admit, you know, that I made a bad shot that I could improve. So I learned a lot from that hunt and I was rewarded a lot from that hunt. And that's why it's the most most memorable for me. Beautiful deer. And, and Damien, I'd certainly love to hear you've, you've taken some great bucks in October. Do you have one that jumps out or do you even have just a great story that jumps out from hunting in October? 
I, I told the, it would be the the one that I was talking about earlier because the that deer um, just three years of history with him, and I got there's video of my hunting with my wife, and uh-huh. he walks out into the field as a as a three year old, and just you know just a beautiful young ten point big tall G twos, and I, on the video it's a cell video and. Yeah, I'm on there saying, man, that deer is going to be a giant if he survives. And then the next year, he blows up into a double main beam that was like 185 ish. You know, just just an awesome, awesome deer. Um, had that had him all summer long. Had like phenomenal photos of him. It, it was to the point where I was setting trail trail cameras up to get like the most like like calendar type photos with this deer right he was he was that predictable he he was bedding in like this 10 acre section and he was coming up top onto the ridge and then he would drop down into the bottom in the soybean field and he lives if he left a 20 acre section that entire summer i'd be surprised um and then that fall uh we got a windstorm he disappeared um, I set out to kind of figure out where he went. I moved cameras. Um, I went all the way about three quarters of a mile to the other end of the property and where there was some chestnut oaks and the wind had knocked a bunch of chestnut oaks down. I put cameras in there. The first night I had, the first night I had him in there, I had pictures of him and started patterning, started to get narrowed down, thought I was going to get an opportunity to kill him. And the new moon was coming up. He was moving closer to closer to daylight. I'm like, man, this is all going to come right together. And he showed up the about two days later and he broke his entire right side off about three inches off his head. Um, so he got a pass that year, needless to say. After that, he became the most visible deer on the farm. Saw him all the time. Watched him breeding does across the valley. Just absolutely crazy. Next summer... He blew up into, he lost the double main beam, blew up and his frame got even bigger, um, but he lost some of the extras. Um, same thing, was living on that section where, where I was getting photos of him up on the top of the ridge. I planted like a little acre and a half soybean field and I had him fenced off with uh, with uh, uh, an electric fence, two-phase or two-tier electric fence to keep the deer out of it. And then uh, as it matured, I, I took the fence down, started getting p- pictures of him there. Um, and then the same, almost the same time frame, he disappeared, moved my cameras over to where I picked him up the year before. He was, boom, right back on the same pattern. And just everything was falling in together. And, you know, and then it came down to that, you know, the, the, it rained all day. It was the new moon. Um, it, it stopped at four o'clock. I got couldn't get in there till 4:30. I left work a little bit early. Um, felt like I was a little bit behind because I was already bumping does that were up and moving, and uh-huh. I wasn't on stand 40, 45 minutes. And he comes walking out the bottom, and you know, then it leads to me changing stands. Comes up, and when he stepped out, he was exactly 35 yards downwind of the stand I had originally started in. And uh, when I shot him, he mule kicked ran 25 yards and stopped and tipped over. And, uh, that, uh, that was, Oh, I, I left out the part when I was shed hunting, looking for his sheds. Uh-huh. The only piece of his shit antler that I found was the three inch base that, uh, off those broken side. And I had stepped over it two times and I was shed hunting in the rain, walking the opposite direction. And the pedicle 
you know, was standing kind of shining in the rain. And I actually uh, worked it into I, the pedestal. I built a, a pedestal that he is mounted on and uh-huh. his, the, the form is actually sitting on that piece of antler that, uh, that I found of his. So just with all that history and the way that, you know, the, the crazy story of changing tree stands while he's 250 yards away, walking my right. way and just like everything about that is, it's just a, an awesome story. And that one definitely is my number one. Yeah. I'm sure that you're not the only bow hunters ever had to do that. I, I just never heard a story like that before. And, you know, it's such a great story and congratulations on a terrific year. And I think this is a, a great place for us to wrap up. So I want to thank you, Damien and, and Billy, both of you for joining us and, and sharing your, your knowledge of hunting in October. And, you know, for everybody who does hunt this time of the year, and if you know, you know, and if not, uh, if you really want those guys that stick for November in the rut, give it a whirl, but we'll see everybody next time on the bow hunting podcast. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's bow hunting podcast, all bow hunting all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.